0: Um, uh, uh, the the idea of of Christian love being foundational, being fundamental for our ethics as Christians. And I made the argument that uh, as Christians, what we need to do is to learn how to reason ethically in accordance with various principles that God has laid down for us, that he has set down for us in scripture. And I want to develop that idea tonight, but let me begin by simply reviewing a number of Uh, passages that we've looked at from 1st Thessalonians, but also from uh, 1st John. So really drawing on all of our studies that we've gone through in these evening services over the past uh, several months, and uh, really with a focus on this idea of love. In 1st Thessalonians, last week and the week prior, we saw rather clearly that one or two ways in which Paul called the Thessalonians to express their love for one another, we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4, particularly in verse 6, how his call to purity was rooted in a call to love. And we also saw in verses 9 through 12, which concerned brotherly love, that the particular expression of love that Paul was interested in, in the, context, uh, in the Thessalonian context, was an expression of love that uh, demonstrated itself in industry, in, in hard work, that is, where people aspired to live quietly, to mind their own affairs, to work with their own hands, that was his desire for the Thessalonians, as a way of showing their love for one another, not living in dependence uh, on one another, but rather being independent through their own hard work and their quiet life. These are expressions of love, and they are founded in that fundamental principle in the Christian life. Similarly, when we reflect on First John and we think about what John taught us in that letter, we saw over and over again How he taught us the fundamental uh, importance of brotherly love in the Christian life. And you can think, for example, of 1 John chapter 2 in verse 9. In this broader section, he's speaking about the new and old commandment that we have from the Lord. In verse 9 and following of that chapter, he said, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But whoever loves his brother, abides in the light and in him... There is no cause for stumbling. Again, in chapter 3 of that same letter, he would return to this same theme in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers. The world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brother's. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He goes on from there to speak about love, uh, a definition of love, and so on and so forth. But the main point then, as we saw from 1 John and now from 1 Thessalonians, and I would submit to you, we see in really every single uh, document in Scripture is that love is foundational in the Christian life and I want to help you to think about how to reason uh, on that basis that is when we think about what is required of us from an ethical perspective the fundamental reality that undergirds our ethical decisions as Christians must be love but we need to be careful about how we define love and here we recall first John as well there's a cultural definition a definition that our world would embrace when it uses the word love. And it typically means something like an emotion, a feeling, or even an act of passion. But when scripture speaks of love, it speaks in terms of an action. And particularly, as we remember from 1 John three sixteen and 1 John 4, 2, an act of sacrificial giving. The chief example of which is the sending of the Son by the Father as a propitiation for our sins. Or from the perspective of the son. His willing sacrifice. His willing giving of himself. As, a atoning, as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. These acts of sacrificial giving. Typify what love is. So when we define love. We are called to love in the same way. In which God has loved us. In the same way in which Christ has loved us. Love then. Biblically defined involves the imitation of God. For John tells us in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. And it's a consequence of God's love for us. As he goes on to say later in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Moreover, when we think about our duty to love God with our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind, all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, we see, we remember from 1 John that these two are inextricably linked they're inseparable love for God and love for one another those two things cannot be uh, separated but if we don't love each other if we don't express that sacrificial giving love toward one another then we have no right to claim that we love God this then of course as I've said and we'll say again is the foundation for our life in terms of our ethical reasoning as Christians these fundamental commandments these First and second great commandments, that we should love God with all of our being and we should love our neighbor as ourself. Especially in the church, we express that second commandment with those words, loving one another, or brotherly love. As we step back up in this reflection, what I want to do tonight then is to think through um, not just this particular principle, but actually seven ways, seven ethical principles... Uh, that help us, you know, to to reason through the challenges that we face in life. This is why I say we'll be looking at a number of passages, seven ethical principles that help us to determine what would God have us do in any situation. And let me just simply list them uh, for you. I've given I've given these names, and some of the names are uh, will, will require some definition. The first one we start with is called a creation principle, and the idea of a creation principle is that we look to uh the creation accounts and we see the way in which god made the world and 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 the 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 things that he established in the beginning and we recognize that in that in what god did at creation he established priority he established universality and he established good the goodness of any particular thing or institution or action within a temporal framework let me explain what i mean by that by saying that he established the priority of the thing before, you know, if you think of uh, marriage, for instance, God created Adam and Eve. He created them to be married. He created marriage there in the beginning. And so we see that there is a priority of marriage in terms of God's purposes for us. It even takes priority. If you go back to Genesis 2, I'll show you this. In Genesis 2, it even takes priority over the relationship between uh, parents and their children. So therefore, so there in uh, Genesis chapter 2. After God caused Adam to sleep and then he took his rib and he fashioned it into the woman. Then when Adam awoke and he saw her, he said in verse 23, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. You see there that that marriage relationship takes precedence and priority over that Prior relationship of a father and a uh, a father and a son or a mother and a son God created marriage before there were even any uh, there was the creation of that second institution of the uh, father-son relationship you see so there's a priority there but there's also universality we think about marriage again we recognize that this is an institution that's not just for people in the church it's one that applies universally for all people at all times in every place and the way in which it's set before us as marriage between a man and between a woman is, between, uh, is a universal principle. Our world would deny it, and yet when we reason biblically, we reason on the basis of creation, we recognize the universality of this principle. And we recognize its goodness as well. We can see in the creation accounts how after each the completion of each day, God sees the things that he's made, and he sees that it's good. And as the creation account proceeds, when God um, brought all of the animals before Adam and Adam named them there was not a helper found fit for him and in that instance we see the one thing in all of creation that God sees that is not good that the man is alone and God resolves that and so we're to understand then that the, 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 we're to understand the goodness of marriage in creation all of that of course occurs within a temporal framework that is it's bound by uh the existence of this earthly creation so for instance Later in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, when um, scri- Sadducees came to Jesus and confronted him about uh, the, the, the nature of the resurrection, they gave him this difficult problem where uh, a woman um, married a man, and, and then her husband died, and she married his younger brother, as was the custom, and he died. And they go through seven brothers, none of them having any children. The question is, whose uh, wife will she be in the resurrection they think they've really stumped him because they don't believe in the resurrection and Jesus in that instance says um, uh, you don't know the scriptures you don't know the power of God because in the resurrection they're neither, mar- they neither married nor are given in marriage so outside of this temporal framework in this creation marriage is no longer an institution that we will see in eternity and so this is what I'm when I talk about a creation principle uh, not to belabor the point This is the way in which we reason on the basis of creation to determine what is ethically right. We recognize within the context of the world in which we live, as it is now created, these are things that God has established from creation that are universal, that have priority, and are good. There's another way that we can reason ethically as we try to think how can we conform our lives to the pattern that God has set before us, not just in terms of creation, but also in terms of following the examples that are set before us. This is a second principle then, the principle of godly examples. And we can say godly examples, but we can also say negatively of bad examples that we have in Scripture. And so just thinking again in terms of the book of Genesis and also on our category of, uh, of marriage and family and how we ought to live toward one another and relate toward one another, we can walk through the book of Genesis and we can see good examples and we can see bad examples of people Uh, of men relating to their wives and relating to other women of men uh, relating to their children and children relating to their parents of of, uh, brothers relating to one another so for example you think of Genesis 16 and you think of Abram and Hagar and you have an example there but it's certainly not an example for us to follow as Sarai gives Hagar to her husband in order to solve this dilemma they have no children that is an example but it's not one to be imitated but later then you see in the example in Genesis 24, of Isaac and Rebekah. And here you have an example that is worthy of imitation. You have in Genesis one of the very few, if not the only marriage that, at least in its very beginning, is a rather godly marriage. Is, rather, is one that is rather worthy of imitation. One that is commended to us. Later on in Genesis you can come to chapter 38 and you see this narrative account of Judah, one of the sons of Jacob. And how he treated his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and the wickedness that ensues in that account. And you see a negative example, one that we are not to imitate. But in the very next chapter, in chapter 39, you see an example that is worthy of imitation in the person of Joseph. As he is tempted by the wife of his master, as he's a slave in Egypt, and he's tempted by Potiphar's wife, and he resists. And he says, how can I commit such a great sin against God? and he flees from that so you have this principle of example that works both in positive and negative ways we can apply that then to that that category of marriage and family and it's a right way to reason biblically about how we can conform our lives to the patterns which God has given us to the uh, to the standard that God has given us so we have a creation principle we have the principle of examples we also have what we might call a legal principle we think about that, uh, let me go back a moment, the principle of an example, one of the benefits that this gives to us, it, is an, it enables us to evaluate, the, uh, positively or negatively, an act or a way of thinking or a way of life based on the person's credibility or based on seeing their whole life in a short space of time. You see, in, my, in our situation, if we're faced with a decision in life and we are struggling to to discern what way we should go. We can't see all the way down uh, the whole of our life and see the consequences of our actions, but we could look, for example, at Joseph's actions and we can see that the initial outcome of his of his integrity was not good for him from a worldly standard. But in the long term, we can see that his faithfulness had positive ramifications, not just for him, but also for his whole family. You see how that, that principle of example helps to inform our decisions about life. And so then we recognize that sometimes we'll make choices that are rooted in godliness and in integrity. And they, uh, they, they may lead to negative consequences in, in a worldly sense, in the imme- in immediacy. But we can trust that ultimately the wisdom of that course of life will be seen. So you can see why examples are important. Uh, it's important to reason on the basis of examples. Thirdly then, the, pr- the legal principle, as I, as I suggested a moment ago, one of the chief benefits of a legal principle is that it lays down, it communicates with great clarity what God requires and the consequences of, uh, of faithlessness, but also the rewards and benefits of faithfulness, of, of, of obedience within a particular context, and that is a covenantal context, right? We think of the law given to Moses. We think of the law that was given to Moses. You can look at Exodus chapter 20, for instance, where we find the Ten Commandments, And God communicated with great clarity what his standard was for the people of Israel. There are a great many commandments throughout uh, Exodus and and, and Leviticus and through through the rest of the law and Numbers and Deuteronomy. But here we can see with clarity the Ten Commandments. And in that, when we think about marriage and family, we see in in verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. It's very simple. It's very clear. It's well uh, articulated. And in the broader context of the law, we can see that God laid down very clear guidelines for uh, what would happen, what would be the consequences when someone fails to keep this commandment as uh, later laws were given to say, well, this is how you deal with this situation or that situation. It's the upshot of the uh, the, 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 the legal principle for how we can determine what is ethically required of us. But it is rooted in a covenantal context and we do need to understand that. As Christians, we are no longer under the law of Moses. As Christians, we are under not the old covenant, but the new covenant. We're not without a law. We have the law of Christ. We can reflect on John chapter 13, verse 34, for instance, where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. And he encapsulates it with the words that you love one another. It doesn't mean that uh, all of the uh, the principles that we find in the law of Moses are no longer valid. It means that under the new covenant, we don't need uh, hundreds and hundreds of, um, of clearly defined, clearly articulated commands in order to guide our ethical reasoning. Because God under the, in the new covenant has written his law upon our hearts. And it's enough for him to say, for Jesus to say, have faith in me and love one another through the spirit in us guiding us we are able to reason in a way where we can figure out how to apply that in the context in which God has called us nevertheless we do have a legal principle it may not be as developed in the new covenant as it was in the old covenant we can be instructed by the legal principles of the old covenant as well but we are not under that particular context a fourth a fourth principle that will inform our ethical reasoning as Christians is one of instruction. And here the idea is that one who is wiser, who maybe is a more mature Christian, teaches another how to apply principles of godliness in his or her life through a, in the context of a relationship of love and trust. Here I have in mind texts like Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, and in this text the Apostle Paul instructed Titus, one whom he himself uh, mentored. He said to him in chapter 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. What you have there is the, is, is the idea that uh, Paul lays down that uh, that more mature uh, women, not necessarily older in years, but more mature as Christians, are to instruct and to disciple younger women so that they might learn how to live in a godly way. And we see the same principle from a, the opposite perspective with young men, uh, being uh, whether they're young in the faith or young altogether, being instructed by their fathers, being instructed by godly Christians, and so on and so forth. And you, you think again in that context of marriage and family, as we continue to apply this same theme throughout these principles? Think of the book of Proverbs. How often in Proverbs does Solomon say, my son, my son, listen to my words, receive my instruction. And all throughout Proverbs, Solomon is he's not inventing new instructions. He really isn't. Some people think that he is, that he's simply reasoning on the basis of good common sense. No, he's taking those things which he finds in the law those things that are, are based on these legal principles. And now he's instructing his son how to live and order his life in accordance with those principles in a way that is godly and also with a view to the fact that his son will someday reign and rule over this kingdom and his sons will they'll be princes and they'll govern. and They are called then to not only embody God's law within themselves but also to uphold that standard of justice and righteousness in a kingdom. So they're going to have to be instructed. They're going to have to learn wisdom. And so you think of Proverbs chapter 7, for instance. Proverbs 7, verse 1. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman. From the adulteress with her smooth words. And he'll go on to teach him about the dangers of adultery and the importance of purity in his life. That's just one of the many ways that we see in Proverbs that kind of instruction. It's different than the law, and yet it's consistent with what we find in the law. You can see that same thing from a, someone like an older sister to a younger sister in the Song of Solomon. And that constant refrain when she says, do not awaken love until it pleases. You see it In the best example, in Matthew, I would say, in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 5, teaches the people how to apply the law of God in their own lives. And so you can think, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, those of you who have heard that it was said sayings, where Jesus is showing them, really, what is the spirit of the law? How do you actually apply this in your life? And you can think, for instance, in Chapter 5, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. There's the legal principle straight out of the Ten Commandments. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. There's the consequence for violating the legal principle. But now Jesus gives the instruction. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift and so on and so forth. And what he's doing in that instruction, he's saying, yes, there are requirements within the law in terms of sacrifice, in terms of bringing gifts to the altar. But there's also a priority of importance. And here you then remember the commandment, you shall not murder. But you need to understand that that's not just about the things that you do in your life. And you can look at and say and check off a box and say, well, I've never actually murdered anyone, so I'm good. But you have to recognize what murder flows from is anger. You can see that in the life of Cain and Abel. You say, well, have I been angry with my brother? Uh, yes, I have. And what Jesus teaches us is that the commandment, you shall not murder, properly applied, properly understood really requires us to have certain attitudes and to refrain from certain attitudes in our lives. And you see how this principle of instruction from a wiser person, teaching others how they can apply God's commandments and, 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 and God's standards for living in their lives, is a principle that helps us as Christians to grow in godliness. A fifth principle, then, is one of authority. And I think the best example of this has to do with parents and their children. It's not just an Old Testament, honor your father and your mother, but it's also a New Testament uh, principle that you see. This is from Ephesians 6, boys and girls. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. And so what you see there is from the Apostle Paul, him giving instruction to children within the context of the Ephesian church. And he's just he's he's giving them one simple principle you want to know how to please god honor your mom and dad obey and honor their authority when they guide you when they tell you what to do and what not to do listen to that authority so we have to reflect then as adults in the context of our life what are the appropriate authorities that are placed over us that god has given us that are over us that we need to honor as well that we ought to obey we can think in terms of the home we can think in terms of Uh, The church, we can think in terms of even government and uh, the appropriate authorities that God has put over us. We can think, of course, ultimately in terms of God's commands and how he exercises his authority over us. But this is also a principle that helps us to uh, grow more and more like Christ, to reason in this world that we live how to act and how to respond to the challenges we face and the trials that we face, how to respond to the difficult ethical Uh, situations that we face in a way that is christ-like and in a way that is godly there's two more principles i want to give you the sixth is a doctrinal principle this is the idea that we reason from abstract truths or from doctrines to appropriate responses to appropriate responses I, i don't want to spend all evening going through some examples but i think that one place where you'll find this is in um Paul's letter to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7 is an example. In 1 Corinthians 7, in the whole chapter, Paul is reasoning through a whole range of difficulties that confront the Corinthian church in terms of their marriages, in terms of prospective marriages, in terms of whether or not people should remain single in a given situation, whether or not people are free to uh, remarry if they're If a spouse who's an unbeliever abandons them. Whether or not they should remain married if they become a believer and their spouse does not. All of those questions confront the church in Corinth in that first century setting. And Paul reasons through all of them. He doesn't simply say, here's a command, here's a command, here's a command, here's a command. No, he takes truths that he knows and he works through those difficult problems. And he doesn't always come to a definitive solution. Sometimes he advocates saying, This is better than that. But he is using reason, his his rational faculties, on the basis of doctrinal truths that he knows concerning the goodness of marriage, concerning the necessity of purity within marriage and faithfulness within marriage, concerning the reality, we could say, of Christ's coming and the challenges that face the church in this present age, and on and on as he draws all of these things together. Then he draws different conclusions about how the Christians in Corinth ought to respond. It's instructive, but it's doctrinal reasoning. It's difficult, it's complex, it's something that requires some maturity as a Christian to work through those kinds of challenges, to, um, uh, to apply those kinds of principles in our ethical reasons, reasoning. But as we grow as Christians, as we mature, it's something that we need to learn to do. And how best to learn? By looking to examples of people like Paul and working through their logic in passages like 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Corinthians 8, which concerns whether or not the Corinthians could eat food that was sacrificed to idols. And ask, how did he reason? What was the basis for that logical decision that Paul made, and how he confronted that challenge in his life? And so, you know, you've heard the phrase, some things are easier caught than taught, right? Paul is showing us his mind. And as we read and we think deeply about what he's doing... We can catch on to the way in which he thinks through these difficult problems. Well, I know that's long and, and lengthy uh, pr- number of principles, and there's one more. But I've worked through these because I want to make a particular argument. As so we come to this final principle, which has to do with the eternal being of God. It's an argument that I introduced last week, and maybe it was a bit rushed, and so I want to draw it out a little bit more. And this idea is that it, it, it follows from this, the, the idea of doctrine, from reasoning based on doctrine. But here we're reasoning based on what God has revealed concerning himself, of his eternal nature in creation, but most uh, most clearly in the sending of his Son. And as we see God's nature, and we see that he is uh, the, the, a God who is holy, a God who is perfect, a God who is love, we recognize that as his people and as his children, it is incumbent upon us to be his image bearers, to be like him, to properly be his children and to reflect his nature. I said that the very first principle that I set before you was a creation principle. I spoke about how the creation principle establishes priority. We can see that even in the way that Jesus himself reasons about questions relating to divorce, for instance, in Matthew chapter 19, when the Pharisees come to him to test him in Matthew 19, they test him on the basis of whether or not it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife. I'll simply read this so that you can catch on to how Jesus applies that creation principle to determine priority. The background context is that Deuteronomy 24 gave some regulations for how a man could go about divorcing his wife under the Old Covenant. But here's what Jesus says when they ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife in Matthew 19:4. So have you not read that he who created them from the beginning from the beginning, there's your creation principle, made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they no longer, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they ask then, they follow up with a question that's based on the legal principle. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? That's from Deuteronomy 24. And Then Jesus responds, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. And then he comes back to the creation principle. How does he, how does Jesus determine that Deuteronomy 24 is a concession, is a concession that permits the act because of the hard heartedness of the Israelites, because God had not yet given them that soft heart that he promised under the new covenant. Well, here's the answer. But from the beginning, it was not so. This is how Jesus determines that that was a concession. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality, and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, they go on to ask, how can this be possible? But you can see how he reasons on the basis of that creation principle to establish the priority of one thing over another. As we come to this final principle then, and we think about the eternal being of God, I made the point last week, and I it again, That this establishes an eternal priority remember what i said about the creation principle it establishes a priority within this temporal framework that is within the creation as it currently is when we speak about things that are true of the nature of god that god is love we just it's so helpful to use the language we remember from first john first john 1 5 god is light and in him is no darkness at all and that captures all of his perfections all of his holiness and 1 John 4.8 and 1 John 4.16, God is love. He repeats it twice. We're speaking of the eternal being of God, the eternal nature of God. Here is something that, is, that has a priority that supersedes all others. We think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Even faith and hope will come to an end because there's a day coming when we will see as... We won't need faith because we will see God as He is. We'll see Christ as He is. There's a day coming... When our hopes will be fulfilled. And hope will come to an end too. But love will never end. Right? Because God is love. It's part of his eternal being. It's, it's, it's his eternal nature that he is love. So likewise, his holiness, his perfections. God is light. God is holy. It's part of his eternal nature. His eternal being. This is the prime. Prim, the, the, these truths are primary and foundational as we reason as Christians, about how we ought to live in the world uh, as it is. How we ought to respond to the challenges we face in this world. Why am I going through all of this? Why am I laying down these principles? The reason is because one thing that I observe, one thing that I see is that we struggle to figure out how we ought to respond to one situation or another. Because we, we, we see these principles in competition and we fail to see that they're all in a perfect harmony they speak with one voice. That it is, it's not about pitting one principle against another whereas we say, well, God is love, but the law says this, and this creation principle says this, and so uh, you know, one thing seems to speak in, in one way and, and, and one principle seems to encourage me in another way. That's not really uh, how these work, but they all work in a perfect harmony. But very often, our ethical reasoning breaks down because We fail to see that harmony. I I can give you examples. This will make the point a lot easier. If I give you examples from scripture. For example. In Matthew chapter 12. Since we're looking in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 12. Here there's a situation where. Jesus comes into a synagogue. And there's a man with a. um, With a withered hand. In Matthew chapter 12. Verse 9. He went on from there and entered there a synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And that's really key. Why did they ask the question? They wanted to accuse him. Their hearts were not right. Their hearts were not motivated by love. So they took the legal principle and used it as an occasion for unmerciful uh, accusations, for unmerciful and unloving testing of the Son of God he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So what Jesus does is he challenges them to see it from a different perspective. What he's about to do in healing this man is not actually a violation of the Sabbath he 's not actually breaking the Sabbath and what he 's about to do. they think that he is because they have a whole host of traditions where they 've privileged the legal principle and they 've forgotten the necessity of love and they 've forgotten the necessity of mercy and they, they haven 't understood as we, we can see in a few verses earlier in verse seven they haven 't understood what God meant when he said through hosea in hosea six six "I desire mercy and not sacrifice so they don 't care about mercy for them the supreme point is legal obedience to the Sabbath, which they interpret as something that uh, was never intended when the commandment was laid down. They're all wrong, and so he asks them to make some value judgments just based on common sense. If you see a sheep of yours falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you say, well, it's the Sabbath, so I'll have to leave it till tomorrow. No. You take the sheep out of the pit. That's just common sense, and no one will, will convict you of having broken the Sabbath. Then he says, how much more value is a man? And if you are reasoning on the basis of mercy, you would recognize, yes, that man is more valuable than a sheep. If I would do this for my sheep, how much more valuable than a man, is a man? And then Jesus heals him. The Pharisees don't get it. They go out and they conspire against him how to destroy him. Because in their minds, these principles are in competition. And the thing that wins out is their version of sabbath obedience right and what needs to happen is they need to see the harmony in it all in it all they need to see that god's love his steadfast love and his mercy is of primary consequence and you can just see all through the prophets for instance when you just saw what jesus said when he told uh when he in the instructions about anger leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother What he's saying is there's something right now that's more important than your sacrifice. Reconciliation, love, mercy, forgiveness. That matters a lot more. You think of David in Psalm 51 after he'd sinned with Bathsheba. You will not delight in sacrifices or I would give them. What does God want? A broken and contrite heart. Repentance first. There's the priority. Then, David says in Psalm 51, then you will delight in right sacrifices. How about in Zechariah chapter 7, when the people ask God, they've been fasting, they've been carrying on this fast. Year after year, they say, do we need to keep doing this fast? God's answer through Zechariah was, is it for me or for yourselves that you're fasting? Then challenges them, do justice. Show mercy. These things matter a great deal more than the rituals that you're going through. And he's showing them there are things that are prior And they're rooted in the very nature of God. It doesn't mean that those other things aren't good and they can't be right. It doesn't mean that Sabbath observance wasn't required of the people of Israel. It doesn't mean that Jesus was breaking the Sabbath. He wasn't in that context as he was living as a faithful Israelite, keeping the law fully. He was showing them that their understanding of Sabbath keeping was wrong because they'd gotten all of their priorities out of whack. They did not know how to reason ethically, as followers of God. We can see this in other examples in Scripture. In Romans chapter 6, for instance, Paul has been laying out the gospel. He's been teaching the Roman Christians concerning the nature of God's grace and the the, the way in which we are justified by faith apart from works. Then he asks some questions, some rhetorical questions. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Here would be a doctrinal logic, a doctrinal reasoning. Well, if you say, Paul, that we are justified freely by God's grace through faith, then I should just sin and enjoy life because I'm forgiven. I've got faith. It's the way a lot of people in our world think. We privilege the doctrinal logic, the doctrinal principle, in a way that is improper Because we pit it against these other principles that God has laid down in scripture. And yet when we think about, for instance, the eternal being of God, that God is holy. And we ought to be holy as his children. God is perfect. And Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He does not mean that we must be sinless. We cannot be. That we must strive for that holiness we must be that kind of people like john teaches us in first john one five when he says this is the message we have heard from the beginning that god is light and in him is no darkness at all and what follows from that is a whole number of, of of ethical uh consequences that we need to be people who walk in the light if god is in the light and that means confessing our sins not being sinless we can't be but being honest and truthful about our sin and bringing them before the lord and seeking the cleansing that comes through Christ. If we were to reason on these bases. Then we would not ask this question that Paul rhetorically asks. Are we to sin all the more that grace may abound? So of course his answer by no means. How can one who died to sin still live in it? Similar question in verse six, um, sixteen of this same, 15 of this same chapter. What well, then are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Here's a, he's laid down a doctrinal truth and they say, well, we're not under the law, we're under grace, so can we sin all the more? The answer is, by no means. Do you not know that if you are pre- present yourselves anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And he goes on from there, but the point I want to make is that he's demonstrating a way in which we can fail to reason properly as Christians about the life that is pleasing to God, Because we privilege one principle in such a way where we put it in competition with these other principles that I've laid down, that we see laid down in Scripture. We can go on from there, but I will leave uh, examples for another time. I simply want to make make this point that God's word establishes priorities. We saw that in Matthew 12. and We can see that if we expand that context and look at how Jesus lays down various priorities, showing, for example, that Temple sacrifice under the Old Covenant took a priority over the Sabbath. In other words, the priests offered sacrifices. They did their job on the Sabbath day. And they recognized there's a priority. And Jesus then says, I'm greater than the temple. Something greater than the temple is here. And exercises his lordship over the Sabbath. If temple sacrifice took precedence over the Sabbath day, and Jesus is greater than the temple, then his decisions, his rules took precedence over their understanding of the Sabbath. Sabbath. Similarly, when David needed bread for sustenance, he cites an example from 1 Samuel. When David was running for his life from Saul and he came to the temple, and there was the showbread, it was the only bread available. And David took it, and he and his men ate it. The priest who gave it to them was guiltless. He did not violate the law, Jesus teaches. Why? Because he prioritized mercy, because he recognized that the restriction on who could eat the showbread could be set aside in that moment when this man, this anointed uh, one of God, needed the bread for his life. And we can see that then crystallized in Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. And on and on, Jesus demonstrates that there are priorities. We can see it in many, many passages throughout scripture, many of which I've already presented to you tonight. Simple truth is that there are we, we, we need to recognize these priorities as we reason ethically about the challenges that we face in our lives. What does this have to do with our study in Thessalonians? Why did I want to spend a good deal of time really elaborating these ideas? One of the very problems that the Thessalonian Christians was, were facing, very likely, was that they reasoned incorrectly based on some doctrines that they had misunderstood concerning the coming of our Lord. And that, that particular example was their idleness. Now, there could have been many causes for why some people were not working and were just uh, mooching off of the good grace of other people. But one of them, very likely, was that uh, they had misunderstood the nature of Christ's coming. Either they thought it was very soon, and so they could stop working because it wasn't really that urgent and necessary, or they figured that, uh, or they had been wrongly taught, as we'll see in 2 Thessalonians, that by some, that the day of the Lord had already come. And that led to a whole host of other problems. They were reasoning wrongly based on errors in doctrine or an incomplete picture. And the simple answer that Paul gave them was not to, uh, to say that what you need is all the details about Christ's coming or you need a bit more instruction in a systematic theology. But they needed to go back to that primary and fundamental principle that Christ has laid down for us, which is that we love one another. And they needed to see that what they were doing was unloving it was patently unloving and it was unbecoming of a christian and no sense of urgency in their life could change that in any way i think that as we begin in our own life as a congregation in the weeks to come to look at these questions about the coming of our lord and to think about this subject of eschatology and the challenges that it presents to us and the various opinions that Christians across the theological spectrums hold on this matter there's going to be a challenge before us as well and that challenge will concern the same issue of love do we prioritize love for one another do we learn how to speak about these things to work through these challenges in our life together in a way that is loving to one another or do we privilege the feeling that comes when we feel like we've won an argument? But when we're right, do we think that every single matter whatsoever must be established with complete certainty and so divide from people who we ought to call brothers and sisters in Christ? That's a challenge that we're going to face in the days, in the weeks, and the months ahead. I want to... Prepare us, I wanted to prepare us for that challenge by reminding you all and reminding myself as well of the fundamental importance, the priority of love, biblically defined, demonstrated in Christ's sacrificial love for us and going to the cross for our sins. And if we prioritize that and recognize that that creates the standard by which we are called to live, then I think that we'll navigate these rough waters ahead with grace and with charity. Maybe not agreeing on every matter and that's really okay. But certainly agreeing that we are going to live together with love and with unity and prioritize the good of others over our desires and our interests. That's what our Lord did for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would take these these words that I've spoken tonight, that you would work through them. That if I have spoken rashly or wrongly in any way, that you would let it depart from our minds. But those things that are truly derived from your word, that you would work to impart those in all of our hearts and minds, that we might be a people who grow into maturity in Christ, who know how and learn how to reason Rightly from your word based on the principles that you've given us who are not dependent solely on authoritative declarations or legal principles laid down but who know how to apply those fundamental uh, principles that you've given us in the two great commandments in our life together so that all of our life is characterized by love for one another in the context in which you called us And love for you primarily and ultimately in the context in which you've called us. Lord, we know that ultimately we love because you first loved us. And it is true that all of our ability to love one another flows from you. And so we pray and so we ask that you would so work in our hearts and in our minds. That we might truly and faithfully live out the command of our Lord Jesus Christ this new commandment that he has given, that we should love one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.